Thank you. Well, good morning. It's really good to be here um, at the Lantern. I might just flesh out a couple of things that Sarah has said in a moment, because I know that some of you might be interested in an update, and others who are thinking, who is this guy? Just get on with it, please. So we'll we'll try and strike a balance between the two. But first, uh, we're going to read from uh, Scripture. And so if you have a Bible, or maybe it will appear on the screen, it will appear on the screen. I'm going to read this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing for even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith I am glad and rejoice with all of you so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Oh man, we're going to think about uh, some of those words uh, a little bit this morning. It's great being back, and thank you for the invitation. Um, Proof that if you scrape the barrel hard enough, this is what what comes out in terms of your preaching rotor. I just so happened this week to have met with Bishop Karen, not to talk about uh, the lantern, but of course she was here last week, and it was really uh, good timing that I was able to talk with her uh, today. So I'm sorry, you get the bishop one week. And what a come down a week later. Um, just bear with me. And uh, it was nice that some of you cheered when my name was mentioned. That was re- really heartening. You won't be cheering by the end of this, I assure you. Um, but it's really, really good to be here. This still feels like home turf, really, coming back here. Even though the building has kind of slightly changed direction and the walls look different and uh, a stunning job has been done on the church. And even though actually when we come back to the Lantern, there are always new faces, which is a great encouragement for a church. But it still feels like home. And we're still trying to get toddlers away from the drums and, and things like that. So it's, it, nothing really has changed. But it's good as a family to be back with you uh, today. So we left here to um, train uh, for ministry in Nottingham, two years up there, and then three and a half years in Salisbury, where I served a brilliant curacy, absolutely fantastic in a church called St. Francis. And then last January, uh, we moved to Weymouth, which is where we came here from many years ago, and I'm now vicar of the big pointy church near the sea called St. John's, and if ever you fancy some sea air and a weekend away, do come and see us, and it was great last week to see the Rawlins family surprising me at church as well, so good to see you again, two weeks running, really, really good, and things are going well there, there are a lot of encouragements, there's also a lot of work to do, so do remember St. John's um, and ourselves in your prayers uh, as you pray for us. So anyway, some thoughts on Philippians. And really what I'm going to do this morning is think more about the big picture of the Philippian church and what they were going through. And, and then just we're going to focus in on one of those verses that I just read. So this isn't a detailed exposition of every word you just heard read from the passage, but a bigger picture of what this church were going through and um, hopefully some helpful things about God at work amongst us as we do that. And so we're going to think together about this early church. Dynamic, passionate, energetic, driven, energizing, a visionary leader who has meant so much to so many people, an evangelist 
who's been inspired, nurtured, taught, seen many amazing things happen, nurtured and grown the church to a strength, a place of strength and maturity, one to whom many people are thankful. But now Paul was in prison. I don't think Andy's in prison. I've heard North London called a few things, but um, there's perhaps a parallel here. The Philippians had got very, very used to Paul being amongst them. Paul had been really the founder of the church, and we'll think about that in a few minutes' time. And the Philippians had inevitably relied on Paul as the founder of their church, and he was the evangelist who had nurtured and grown and led the church with great drive and great passion and great vision. And now he's not with them anymore. He's done his job there, and he's moved on to somewhere else. And actually what's happening is that he's now under house arrest. The persecution is ramping up against the people of the way, the Christians. And Paul is probably, almost certainly, writing this letter to the Philippians under house arrest. And so a lot of what we see in the book of Philippians reflects the changing dynamic that the people in Philippi are experiencing because of what has happened to their leader. Now, reading Paul's letters is a little bit like listening to one half of a phone call. We've all done that, haven't we? Someone else is on the phone, and you listen in, and you try and work out, A, who's the person speaking to, and what's the kind of conversation that you're having. You can have a pretty reasonable guess about what's happening on the other side of the phone call based on listening to one side. And with Paul's letters, we get to listen in to one side of the phone call. We never see the letter that the Philippians wrote to Paul. Uh, We just have to kind of deconstruct it and work out probably what was going on for the Philippians based on what Paul sends in return. And so we're going to think, by looking at what Paul emphasizes in this letter to the Philippians, what do we learn and what do we suspect that is actually going on for this church in Philippi? Well, Paul's letter is deeply personal. It's great that you're reading it as a church together. It's a a beautiful letter. It's really... um, pastorally crafted towards the people who are there. It's really consistently encouraging. There's a repeated focus on rejoicing and positivity. And hearing that half of the phone call suggests that the Philippians have become disheartened. They seem to be discouraged. Discouraged that Paul is no longer with them. Discouraged that he's in prison. Discouraged that actually this might mean curtains for the early church movement. What seemed to be going so well is now facing so many challenges. And discouragement can affect all of us, whether we're in a church that feels like it's going really, really well, or a church that's struggling, or in any kind of sphere of life. Discouragement can set in really, really easily. And when it does, if we don't check it, if we don't pray, if we're not careful, if we feed it too much, everything can begin to unravel. And maybe you're feeling somewhat discouraged today. It might not be anything to do with the church. We're so encouraged to be here today, by the way. But maybe there's discouragement in other areas of your life or your faith or your family or anything else that's going on. Maybe this is a word for you today. And we see, I think, in the Philippian church that the discouragement they're feeling has started to lead to this slippery slope of other things unraveling. And it's those things that Paul seeks to address in his letter. The first thing that happens when discouragement sets in is that actually there's a loss of reality. They're discouraged about the spread of the gospel. Perhaps they really do think that this exciting new movement is now over, 
because the leader has gone and the leader's in prison and they just perhaps can't see how the church will now grow. And so in the chapter one, one of the major themes we're not looking at today, but it's worth just reflecting on, the major theme is that Paul is reassuring the people that actually in spite of his imprisonment and actually because of it, the gospel is in fact growing. The Philippians seem to be drifting into this unreality that it's all over. And Paul says, actually, the truth is that the gospel continues to grow. The church continues to grow. And so Paul's letter brings hope and encouragement. It brings perspective and reality for the Philippians. If you know the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, it reminded me of that as I read through Philippians this week. When Elijah is exhausted and depressed, he says to God, there's no one left Everyone has turned away from you. I'm the only faithful person left for you in this nation. And as you read what God does, he gently restores him and heals him. And part of that is that God speaks reality to him. Elijah says, I'm the only one left. God gently, maybe even with a smile on his face, says, actually, there's 7,000 of you left. Don't lose perspective. When we get disheartened, We lose perspective. Reality can get distorted. But God, through his word, through his spirit, and through his people, longs to speak truth to us, to tell us actually what's real in terms of what we're experiencing. And part of being a church family is that we speak reality to each other when we see discouragements creeping in. That may be something you need to do for one another over these coming weeks and months. Speak reality about what's going well, what God is doing, the state that the church is in. It's a great blessing when we do that. Just very personally, I've needed those moments a lot in the last few months. I love being a vicar, and I love where I'm being a vicar, and I love our church, and I think they like me. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's going well most of the time, but when just something discouraging kicks in, it's like loads of things are really, really good, and then there's one word of discouragement, and suddenly everything blows up. And I think, have we come to the wrong place? Are we, should we have gone somewhere else? Should we have waited for a different church? Should we be ministering somewhere else? Have I made loads and loads of mistakes? Does, in fact, everybody really not like the new vicar? Do they still think I'm a youth worker, and that's why they don't respect me? And then actually one or two people, not the youth workers, are unrespected, of course. <laughs> that would never happen. And then usually one or two people might say, actually, look at what's really going on. And perspective comes again. And the reality is restored. But the other thing that kicks in with discouragement, and this is another major theme of Paul's writing, is that joy takes a hit. This is such a joyful church, isn't it? The Lantern. I think it is. It, it always was, and I, and I believe it's, it's, more, it's most joyful days are yet to come. And, it, and it's not because of who's up here. It's because of what God's going to do amongst you. And Paul seems to be addressing over and over again the issue of joy and rejoicing. Compared to how often rejoicing is mentioned in the New Testament, it is emphatically mentioned in Philippians. Rejoice, again I say rejoice. Paul goes on about it all the time. We have to assume that this was a problem for the Philippians. Joyfulness and rejoicing was perhaps slipping down the agenda. And Paul goes to great lengths to say that his joy isn't based on his circumstances. He's in prison, but his joy is solely in Christ. And the joy he encourages, it's not a superficial painted smile on a Sunday morning, but it's something deep. It's something rooted. It's something that rides the storm. 
And the depth of Paul's joy must be linked to the depth of grace that he's received. God had turned his life around. The worst of all sinners, by his own admission, was forgiven and restored. What is our joy based in today? Well, it will last the longest if it's based in grace, God's grace to us. When we know and understand that we are forgiven, it's the grace in which we stand, says Romans 5. You can know that grace afresh today, maybe as we've worshipped, as we've confessed, as we've received God's forgiven. You've been just blown away again by the fact that God has grace for you. And there'll be a chance to respond and invite that grace in afresh in a moment. And so with discouragement, there can be loss of reality, loss of joy, and there can be loss of focus. St. John's in Weymouth is, is uh, visible from right out to sea. And for years, it's been used by people who are out sailing, fishermen, seafarers, as a navigational point as to how close to home they are. And actually, all around Weymouth, you can see our church. When people say, oh, which one is St. John's? I say, it's the big pointy one by the sea. And everybody knows what I'm talking about. It's an incredible building. It's a great sermon illustration often for us in church about our bearings, not losing our bearings, but being focused on Jesus. This letter from Paul is reestablishing the bearings for the Philippian church. Last week, you heard Bishop Karen talking about that incredible passage that speaks of what Jesus has done, the sacrifice he has made, and it's um, introduced with your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Paul is reestablishing who their role model really ought to be. He's deflecting everything away from himself and saying, look to Jesus. And those words are used elsewhere in his letters. Fix your eyes on him, the author, the perfecter of our faith. He's holding him up again, saying, here's your example of how to live. Don't lose sight of it. There's also a great emphasis on perseverance, perseverance, keeping going, pressing in. Again, not just in this letter, but in lots and lots of letters. This is the calling of the church to keep going, to press on, regardless of how tough things can get. And then finally, before we think about just one of these verses, there's a loss of unity. Unity is at risk when discouragement sets in. Were the cracks beginning to appear, appear in Philippi? Paul at least seems to know that there's a risk that they will. And so in his letter, he warns people about selfish ambition, vanity, selfishness. Maybe these things are creeping in to the church because they do easily anywhere because we are flawed humans and the church is contested. The bride of Christ, the most beautiful thing, God's means by which he chooses to bless the world will always be contested. And Jesus' great prayer is that we would be unified together. And Paul's remedy is that they fix their eyes on Jesus, but also that each member takes personal responsibility for their conduct in the family. He says, do nothing without, he says, uh, uh, do not complain or argue now, that can't be a company policy, can it? Imagine running a company and saying, one of our policies is that you will never complain or argue. It just wouldn't work because actually you can't enforce that kind of thing from the top. Your new vicar, when he or she arrives, may say the most important thing is that you never argue. Well, that's going to be really tough, isn't it? That's going to be really difficult. And you must never complain either. That's going to be a real challenge. You can't top-down influence people in that respect. But each individual has to decide 
I'm going to choose to be a person of grace and humility. I'm going to choose in that moment not to argue, not to complain, the parking spaces and all those kind of things. Choose it. It's a hard choice, but it's a choice that needs to be made every day. And it comes from a heart set on God, not from someone up here saying, that's the way you're to do it. And so the one verse that I really hope picks up all of these themes, it was at the very beginning of the reading. I don't know if we can have it on the screen or not, but it's Philippians 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. If we could get that up there, that would be really, really good. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul knows that the Philippians have a track record of obedience. And he's saying all, that's all the more important now because he's not there and things have changed. As I read this, I could almost imagine a certain former vicar of this church saying this. And I nearly phoned him and I said, could you do the reading for us <laughs> on video link? And I thought it might make you cry or, or not for, for varying reasons. So I thought we won't do it. But just imagine if we now showed a video of, of Andy dressed as Darth Vader bouncing on a trampoline doing a reading <laughs> or something like that. We, we can see it. It's not hard to imagine, is it? We can almost see him there. I think he'd say, look, you've, you've been so faithful and so committed while we've been around, but really, just keep going now we're not here. Of course he'd say that to you. Of course you know that. Paul, again, deflecting attention away from himself, saying now is the time to really press in, to really keep going. And the way to do that is that you are to continue to work out your salvation. Now, what's that about, to work out your salvation? Well, it's not like working out a puzzle. It's not like there's a really difficult conundrum that has been placed before you in terms of your salvation. In the Gospels, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's got everything sorted out in his life. And he says, um, what must I do to be saved? What's the answer to the puzzle? What's the answer to the riddle? How do I work out how to be saved? Well, it's not like that. And similar questions might be, what must I do? Am I good enough? How little can I get away with? Is God's grace sufficient for me? Well, they're not the questions that answer the puzzle of salvation. Salvation is a gift, freely given by God's grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's won for us by Jesus. It's his gift to us. So we've got it. Why do we need to work it out? Well, it's not like working out as in mining something that's deeply hidden in the way you might kind of work some stone out of a quarry. It's not some kind of holy grail quest where finally, if we can manage to mine and unearth this salvation, we'll have the secrets of eternal life. That's not what it means to work it out, to bring it forth from a hidden place. Working it out here means seeing it through, bringing to fruition the salvation that God has given you. Not being complacent, but seeking the fullness of life that Christ offers. And growing in maturity. Making the most of the life that you've been saved for. Paul's emphatic that we've been saved for a life. And yes, we celebrate the salvation that God wins for us in an instant. But then the life that he calls us to is harder won. Last week, uh, another great joy of where we are is that we have the most amazing baptistry next to our church. It's called the sea. 
and it's brilliant. I, I, a few times, uh, twice now, we, we've been in, in and baptized people in the sea. It's a great, great joy and, um, and, a, and a good witness, I think, as well on the beach. Um, last week, it was packed on the beach, and we were there, three guys going into the water to, to represent what God's done in their life and to say that they want to follow him, and they choose to follow him. And, of course, they go in the water, and it represents them dying to themselves, and then they rise up again, and they rise to new life. And that's what God is calling us to. That's what Paul's reminding the church for. You're saved for a whole life. You've not just been dragged across a line and then now that's it. There's a whole life that you're called to lead. And he says, keep going because we can easily give up on that. In our age of instant gratification where most things happen really, really quickly, anything that takes time and effort can be really, really tricky. It can lose its appeal. Growing in Christ, being his apprentices, becoming like him, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, all of that kind of stuff. It's usually, in my experience, slow. It can be frustrating. It can even be boring. But Peter had it right when he said that his faith was worth more than gold, well worth the investment. And Paul, later on in this letter, and I expect you'll hear it spoken of in a few weeks' time, says that everything else compared to Christ is rubbish to him. It's so worth persevering into the life that God has saved you for. It's worth it for you, and the world needs you to take that seriously so that you'll shine like stars in the universe, as Paul puts it here. And as I come towards the end this morning, the your salvation is emphatically plural. And most clever people who have written commentaries agree with me. I agree with them. They, they say that actually, of course, you can read your as um, plural or individual, but the, the term used is emphatically plural. Paul is not laying out a mandate for individuals to go off and try and work out their own personal salvation. And we use that personal salvation term, and it's really helpful because what God does in, does in us is so personal, but it's not private. And so what Paul is saying is here is that you have a corporate salvation. And that's true for any church. It's true for the, the international worldwide church. It's true for your home group. I think it's true for your family. And it's true for this congregation here today. You have a corporate salvation. You have a corporate life that God has called you into. And so when Paul says work it out, he's saying it to all of you. And he's saying you need each other to work out your salvation. This isn't about individuals going off and growing deeper in Christ. Of course, that's important. But as a body growing into the great life that he has called you to. He has called your church to fullness of life, not just you in your individual walk with him. And so our calling is corporate. In Ephesians 3, Paul says this. He says, I pray that you may have the power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. And the bit that we can miss is he says that I pray that you'll have the power together with all the saints. In other words, you can't ever fully know the depth of the love of God without other people to tell you about it. And so one person's experience of God's grace will be different to mine. And someone's experience of, of God's healing on this side of the room will be different to someone's experience on this side of the room. And together we grow our sense of who God is and the life that he's called us to. It's a shared calling to grow in the love of God. We do it together. God does brilliant things for us individually. 
deep personal work, and I pray that he is doing those things in your life, that you're open to him doing those things. But our life in Christ is to be shared. We're called to grow together, to serve together, to suffer together, to bear the fruit of the Spirit together, to become like Christ together, to together know the love that goes beyond knowledge and the peace that goes beyond understanding. But we live in an age where it's tempting and easy to do church on our own. You can download a better church service in your front room than you can probably get in your local church. But that's not church. It's not what we're called to. It's not real, actually. Do those things. Listen to podcasts and worship albums. But it's not church. Keep going with meeting together. That's another one of Paul's messages all the way through his letters. Don't give up. Stay together. It means that you together ask God, what are you doing now? And I love that about the tablets and and what God's doing now. It means that together you ask those questions. What are you doing now, God? Thank you for what you've done. And now what's next? What do you want us to do as a church? And don't wait for your new vicar to do that. Do it now. The best gift you could give your new vicar, and I say this as a new vicar, is that you, when she or he arrives, you will be people who are already asking those questions. And so that you can say to them, here's what we think God's doing in the area, and here's how we're following. A loving community of people, passionately engaged with the shared calling of working out your salvation, corporately with your eyes fixed on Jesus, keeping going, full of a joy that comes from grace. And so I would say, live this verse together as you wait for what is next and who's coming next. But don't wait to start living it. Start living it now. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's a bit, bit random. And so there's, there's, there's plenty to be stewing on as a church at the moment and to be thanking God for and to be asking God. But underneath all of it is that question of are our eyes fixed on him? Are we operating from a place of grace? And are we keeping going in the life that he calls us to? None of those things are easy. Sometimes they they feel easier than others, but they're tough. They take real perseverance and real togetherness. And it's only by God's spirit that we can do it. So I'd like to invite you, if if you're happy, to stand. And I don't quite know how you roll now in these kind of moments, but we're just going to invite God's spirit to come and to bless us, to meet with us, in any of the ways that make sense from this word or in other ways too. So let's, let's pray. Corporately, together, lift our eyes to Jesus. Recognizing that it's a shared vocation to follow him. And together, say, come Holy Spirit.